President Biden just called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. The lead starts right now. The U.S. is sending Ukraine more military equipment and millions of dollars in aid, additional dollars in aid, after President Zelensky made an emotional appeal to Congress. But it's still a no on a no-fly zone. And buying a house or getting a car loan is about to get more expensive as the Federal Reserve does something it has not done in four years. And the Fed is going to keep doing it. Then a college campus is in shock after nine people are killed in a crash on the way home from a golf tournament. Details are emerging about the victims. This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, I'm Dana Bash. Welcome to The Lead. I'm in for Jake Tapper today, and we begin this hour with our world lead and an urgent appeal from Ukraine's president to U.S. lawmakers. Quote, I have a need. President Volodymyr Zelensky invoking Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic I have a dream speech, as well as attacks on Pearl Harbor and 9-11, indelible moments in America's history and psyche. Zelensky also played a graphic video of the horrors taking place against the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian leader pleaded for more help, specifically fighter jets and a no-fly zone over Ukraine. He got a standing ovation, but the Biden administration says giving Ukraine the military help that Zelensky asked for would escalate the conflict with Vladimir Putin. Hours before Zelensky's speech to Americans, Russian shelling hit a residential building near the Kyiv city center, injuring two people, according to emergency services. Rescue workers helped dozens of people escape fires after the impact. To the south, the Mariupol City Council says a Russian plane bombed a local theater where hundreds of people apparently had been seeking shelter. It's not clear how many people were killed or wounded. The council writing online, quote, we will never forgive and never forget. Also in the south, the Ukrainian government says it has successfully rescued the mayor of the town of Melitopol. He was detained by armed men after Russian forces took over the city last week. And to the north of Kyiv, a regional official says at least 10 people were killed by Russian bombs as they stood in line for bread. Let's go straight to senior international correspondent Sam Kiley reporting live from Kyiv. So, Sam, moments ago, saw a pretty big shift here in Washington. President Biden now says that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. How big of a deal is this for Ukraine, the government and specifically the Ukrainian people? I think to the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, it's no big deal because uh, what they want is immediate action rather than these rather nuanced diplomatic issues. So, uh, for example, on a day that you've seen, we've seen 10 people killed in a bread queue, uh, unknown numbers potentially killed in the attack uh, against the uh, theatre in the southeast of the country, in Mariupol. Uh, these are actual crimes that have been committed by from the air and it is air superiority that the Ukrainians want taken away. That is something you see on posters and you hear on people's lips every day. The prosecution of Vladimir Putin at some future date for some uh, in an abstract non-existent court uh, over war crimes is not something really that preoccupies Ukrainians. They're all about at the moment uh, immediate action, I think, Dana. And on that note, you spoke today to the deputy prime minister. What did he tell you? Well, uh, it's a she, Dana. 
Um, she, and pardon uh, me. The uh, deputy prime minister, though, <laughs> the uh, prime minister, uh, the deputy prime minister is uh, in charge of the NATO file, but she's also one of the leading intellectuals in the government. And uh, she was pointing out really how uh, it is possible that uh, Vladimir Putin has allowed uh, such appalling atrocities to have been committed across uh, this country and how he may have very seriously underestimated the, the ability of the Ukrainians to resist, as we've seen there, Mariupol, atrocious, uh, uh, atrocious events being committed by the Russians uh, on an almost daily basis, similar things here in Kiev, and yet the Ukrainians fight on. This is how she put it. Even in the biggest uh, cities of Ukraine, which, uh, which has now been circled by a Russian army, or even with the Russian army in there, th these are the people who are standing in front of the tanks with the Ukrainian flag, having no fear uh, with that. And, and this is what surprises Putin. So this is where he fails. So I'm absolutely sure that he's uncomfortable in every moment that he's sitting in his bomb shelter. He fails in nature of his assessment. And uh, the chain of command, which disinforms him and, and the senior management around, shows that they know nothing about our nation. So, and this is the stress that we have against this terror. Now, Dana, the appeal from Vladimir Zelensky for a, a no-fly zone, they know here in Ukraine they're probably never going to get that. So that what they really do need, though, is surface-to-air missiles, long-range ones that can take out Russian aircraft and other missiles that are coming in, uh, which would allow them at least relief from being bombarded from the air. And there's every chance indicated coming from the Pentagon that uh, there may be uh, some supplies of those coming in, if not directly from the United States, then from elsewhere, particularly the S-300, the old uh, Russian uh, anti-aircraft missile systems. Dana? Sam, thank you. A lot of very impressive, democratically elected women in that part of the world. So thank you for bringing us uh, one of them. And in Washington, President Biden offered an additional $800 million in security assistance for Ukraine for a total of a billion dollars over the last week. It's a lot of help, but as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, the White House still isn't giving Ukraine what it says it needs most. President Biden responding to Ukrainian President Zelensky's direct appeal for more assistance for his besieged nation. An additional $800 million in assistance. That brings the total of new U.S. security assistance to Ukraine to $1 billion just this week. Biden announcing the U.S. will send hundreds of millions in new military aid to help fend off the Russian invasion. It includes 800 anti-aircraft systems. And at the request of President Zelensky, we have identified and are helping Ukraine acquire additional longer-range anti-aircraft systems. But Biden stopping short of granting Zelensky's request for a no-fly zone, announcing the U.S. will send drones to Ukraine instead. Which uh, demonstrates our commitment to sending our most cutting-edge systems to Ukraine for its defense. Biden commending Zelensky for his courage in the face of brutal Russian aggression. Putin is inflicting appalling, appalling devastation and horror on Ukraine, bombing apartment buildings, maternity wards, hospitals. Hours earlier, Zelensky delivered a direct and emotional appeal in a historic address to Congress. Russia has turned the Ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people. Zelensky pleading with U.S. lawmakers for more help, calling on the U.S. to sanction all Russian politicians and close Ukrainian skies. 
to create a no-fly zone zone over Ukraine to save people. Is this too much to ask? Humanitarian no-fly zone, something that Ukraine, uh, that Russia would not be able to terrorize our free cities. Zelensky showing a video to highlight how drastically life has changed in Ukraine in the last three weeks, from peaceful moments to missile strikes and mass graves. Zelensky even invoking U.S. history. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th. A terrible day in 20, 2001 when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, in battlefields, when innocent people were attacked. The Ukrainian leader ending his speech in English with a direct appeal to President Biden. I am addressing the President Biden. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. And Dana, for the first time today, President Biden also called President Putin a war criminal. That is a shift from where he was previously when the White House said they were going to let the legal process play out here. The State Department says they are still documenting the crimes and the atrocities that Putin is committing in Ukraine on a daily basis. But the White House is saying that, yes, he is prepared to call him a war criminal now. The legal process and actual repercussions of this remains to be seen. Mainly, this is a symbolic statement coming from President Biden. But the White House says he was speaking from the heart when he says that, yes, he does now believe Putin is a war criminal. Caitlin Collins, thank you for that report from the White House. And joining me to discuss more is Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana, who serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and is also a former Marine and Navy captain. Senator, thank you so much for joining me. First, what's your reaction to President Zelensky's address to you and the rest of the U.S. Congress? I and others, Dana, were just riveted uh, by the presentation this morning from President Zelensky. Uh, He made a very strong, uh, cogent case uh, for needing additional assistance. And he really challenged uh, members of Congress and the administration alike to lean into this situation, to provide the assistance quickly uh, so that uh, the Ukrainians might not just defend themselves, but might arrest the Russian advance and go on the offense uh, in a battle that uh, America needs to uh, ensure ultimately the Ukrainian people win. And you tweeted today that it's an obvious step to transfer MiG fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, Quote, we can't wait another day to transfer these jets. I want to play for you something that the Pentagon argues about why they don't believe that that plan is viable. Our intelligence community has assessed and, and told us that, uh, that for the United States uh, to provide fighter aircraft uh, could be construed, misconstrued by Mr. Putin as an escalatory measure uh, and could spin the conflict to a higher level than it is right now. And I think we can all agree that uh, having the United States and, and Russia uh, involved in an escalatory conflict, two nuclear powers, is not only not good for the world, of course, but it's not good for the people of Ukraine. So given that, how would you logistically get the jets that you want to go to Ukraine in there without Putin deeming it an escalatory measure? 
I will answer that, but briefly, I, I, this is not escalatory. Vladimir Putin is attempting to establish through his rhetoric alone what constitutes escalation and doesn't constitute escalation. He said the same. Uh, it would be escalation to sanction their oil and gas sector. Uh, I think that was the right action. I think we need to provide these aircraft. In terms of logistically transferring the aircraft, a, a very important question. But there are a number of avenues through which this could be done. Ukrainian pilots could, could go and in, in, uh, procure the aircraft from uh, Poland, from another neighboring country. Uh, in, in the United States uh, could instead uh, attempt to uh, work with uh, some non-aligned partners uh, to get the aircraft into uh, Ukraine. There are a number of options that I understand the administration uh, has been considering. Candidly, there hasn't been a whole lot of, of daylight shine on those different options. So to the extent the administration has serious reservations, they really need to commu uh, communicate those reservations, not just to President Zelensky, but also to members of Congress so that uh, uh, we can have clarity about them. I want to get your response to an argument made by Senator Mark Kelly, who is a former naval pilot. He flew combat missions during the Gulf War. He says Ukraine already has 30 MiG-29s now. But listen to what else he said. They're flying five sorties a day. Mm -hmm. Probably half of those airplanes work. So what's the reason? Do they not have enough pilots? Do they not have enough parts? Can we help them with that? Maybe they can't get fuel in the airplanes. Maybe they don't have the weapons to load onto the aircraft. To take a third of the Polish fighter force and give it to Ukraine's with to the Ukraine with no guarantee mm -hmm. that they're going to increase their sortie rate. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like right now the, the right decision. So are you concerned that the Ukrainians won't maximize the use of these planes if they do get them? For example, are you confident that the Ukrainian pilots that you talked about, that they even know how to fly these Polish MiGs? Well, I have been briefed that they know how to fly them. They've been trained uh, by the United States and our partners uh, how to fly Western jets. And, of course, they have experience historically flying the MiG jets. Uh, with respect to any other reservations, we didn't hear those from President Zelensky. So we ought to be resourcing him and his commanders with what they feel like they need. Uh, in order to get this done. But the bigger picture here uh, is not just about aircraft. It's about uh, ensuring that they have battle space dominance. And right now, the battle space that matters most is the air. As long as Russia has control of the air, it's going to be near impossible, I am told, for Ukraine to win a counteroffensive from Kiev. So to the extent we can resource them with anti-air weapons like the S-300 system, which DOD has been in communication with Slovakia to transfer that surface-to-air missile system to Ukraine, and we can provide them requisite aircraft so that they can get some measure of control over the airspace, that will lead to uh, military dominance on the ground and, and a better chance to bring this horrific uh, situation to a close more quickly. Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thanks, Dana. And still ahead, CNN visits Ukrainians who are doing whatever they can to protect themselves in their fight against the Russians, including making homemade body armor. And then crude oil prices are falling. So why are you still paying record prices for gas? We're going to explain. We're back with our world lead in fighting intensifying around the strategic port city of Odessa, Ukraine, including this, which happened live on CNN this afternoon. This noise that we've been hearing here, as I say, fits into this broader... There it is again. Now, I should say this is not something that we are accustomed to hearing here at all. 
This comes just hours after Ukraine's armed forces said Russian warships in the Black Sea fired on villages outside Odessa. I want to get straight to CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh live in Odessa. Nick, it, it does appear that Russian forces are gaining ground there in the south. Today, Dana, I think it's clear it's the first day we've felt more military activity palpable around Odessa here. Certainly in the last 24 hours, Ukrainian officials have said they took out two jets uh, near here, but also said that shells were fired on settlements, villages along the coastline outside of Odessa. That's also been confirmed by a senior U.S. defense official in the last hours or so. So clearly a build-up around Odessa here. And that anti-aircraft gunfire you heard in the clip earlier on, that was pretty subsistent uh, for about 20 to 30 Minutes. This all feeds into the broader picture, though, of Russia pressuring from the east of the Black Sea coast here, from Kherson, which is controlled for over a week, through Mykolaiv, which has been under bombardment for quite some time, trying to either go around it or encircle it so it can begin to pressure here on the third largest city and the major maritime port. The toll on civilians, though, in Mykolaiv, quite awful. On Sunday, nine killed when a rocket hit outside a store, all civilians very indiscriminate. Here's what it did to one woman's life who lost her husband. Svetlana there was actually at the store with her husband to buy sweets for the funeral of her daughter, who died in an unconnected event in the Czech Republic, but she left the hospital entirely alone, having lost her family. Dana? Absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, and Nick, we're learning an airstrike has hit a theater in Mariupol that was being used as a bomb shelter. What do we know about that attack? Yeah, I mean, an event that's potentially so devastating, it's frankly hard to comprehend. This is the drama theatre of Mariupol, a city that's been under siege now for well over a week. Limited aid getting in, very few people getting out. Intense bombardment, frankly, as Russian forces surround it and appear bent on annihilating what remains possibly hundreds of thousands of people. But... Uh, the drama theatre was where many children were sheltering underground. And we've just seen, actually, satellite images that show the word children emblazoned on the courtyard around that building to make it clear to anyone above exactly who was there. But, according to local officials, an airstrike hit that building today. It destroyed the entrance to the bomb shelter, uh, inside which potentially hundreds, possibly as many as a thousand people were sheltering. I've sh seen video filmed in the last week just now, and that it shows a densely packed area of people sheltering. They simply don't know how many people were there or how many may have been killed by this, and it is potentially one of the worst losses of civilian life we've heard so far. Still the details to emerge here, and yet another sign that if you're being extremely generous, Russia simply doesn't seem to care if it kills civilians, but more realistically now, it looks like they're simply targeting them. Dana? It sure does. Nick Payton Walsh, needless to say, please, please stay safe. Thank you for reporting from Odessa, Ukraine. And Russian forces are not yet advancing into central Ukraine, but ordinary civilians are bracing for an eventual attack on their homes. In addition to building barricades and preparing Molotov cocktails, some Ukrainians are now making homemade flak jackets, essentially body armor, 
for soldiers. CNN's Ivan Watson is live in Venezia, Ukraine. And Ivan, it is really incredible to see how these civilians are not only refusing to flee, but standing up and trying to help those who are fighting for their cities. That's right. And I'll get to that in just a sec. You know, I'm coming to you from a hallway because uh, of some security warnings to the hotel that my team is standing at, uh, staying at. So uh, I think it's partially triggered by the fact that this city, one of its TV towers, according to a government agency, a communications agency, was hit by rockets early this morning. No reports of casualties. I actually heard that sound at 4 a.m. It sounded to me like like aircraft and then distant thuds. Uh, and it seems to be part of a pattern. There was uh, another TV, TV tower targeted on Monday morning in another northwestern city called Rivne. And there, at least 21 people were killed. The ground war has not reached cities like Vinitsa, where I am right now. But the signs of mobilization of the population are really astounding. I met a family that had its own workshop, makeshift workshop, in its living room where a grandmother, a retired seamstress who used to make men's coats and suits, is now sewing flak jackets, armor for Ukrainian soldiers, for uh, members of the territorial defense, for people who are being called up to serve in the defense of their country and who, I'm told, some of them don't have flak jackets as they have to head to frontline cities and are looking around. And so this is a homegrown grassroots effort with donations and money out of ordinary Ukrainians' pockets and ordinary Ukrainian skills. For example, uh, I went to a mechanic's garage, and that's where they're taking scrap metal from cars and welding them into the armor plates that go, that go into the flak jackets that this grandmother was helping sew. Her son, who's a lawyer, he was also sewing in the kitchen, sewing some of the blue and yellow armbands that you see the kind of volunteers and some of the security forces wearing at checkpoints. And you can take a listen to what he had to say to me. How many do you make in one day? 200. 200? Yeah. And these go to soldiers? Yes, I think I help my country. Uh, I think uh, this is a good job. This is a good deal for the, uh, our country. Dana, the grandmother told me she hopes the flak jackets protect soldiers because she sews them with love. Dana? And you can see it and feel it uh, coming right through the television screen. Ivan, thank you so much for that and also to you and your and your team, please stay safe as well. And up next, he's one of several foreign policy experts calling for a limited no-fly zone over Ukraine. Former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine joins me after a quick break. In our world lead today, President Joe Biden said an additional $800 million in security assistance will be sent to Ukraine after President Volodymyr Zelensky gave an emotional plea to members of Congress for more help against Russia. I want to discuss that with former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine John Herbst, who served as a Foreign Service Officer in the State Department for 31 years. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining me. I want to ask about... Uh, the idea that you and 27 foreign policy experts have. You're calling for 
a limited no-fly zone over Ukraine. NATO allies say that they're united in their decision not to establish a no-fly zone. So what realistically can be done uh, to make sure that Putin doesn't see anything, even what you're suggesting, as a limited no-fly zone, as an escalatory measure? Okay. I think the most important thing for U.S. policy, for our great interest in Europe, is for us to stop worrying about what Putin considers an escalation and to start worrying about Putin's own escalations. When we keep talking about our fear of doing something Putin considers provocative, what we're doing is signaling weakness. And it enables Putin to intimidate us not to pursue our own interests. And this this talk has to stop. So uh, regarding a, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, can you explain what this limited no-fly zone that you're proposing sure. would be? Look, yes. A regular U.S. no-fly zone requires us to destroy any military installations which could attack our planes. In this case, that would mean we would have to shoot at Russian technicians at their anti-aircraft installations, the S-400s, both in Russia and Belarus. So that is simply something we should not do. But our proposal is for a humanitarian limited fly, no-fly zone, where we would put our planes up to protect humanitarian convoys to provide supplies, food, water, medical equipment, and also to protect humanitarian convoys, civilians leaving of conflict zones. We would tell the Russians we're there, we would tell them when we send in our convoys, and we would not attack. And But we would tell them, if you attack the convoys or attack us, we will strike back. And I think there's a very good chance that Moscow, in that limited no-fly zone, would not challenge us. And what so if they did? Not what if they did? If would, they, it mean, would it mean an actual did, war? If they did, we would strike back, and I suspect that would tell the Russians to, to knock it off. It's worth recalling that we shot at and um, killed 200 Russian mercenaries in Syria in 2018 when they began to attack our forces. The Turks shot down a Russian warplane in 2015, November of 2015, because it violated Turkish airspace. So when countries protect themselves from Russian provocations, Moscow does not necessarily push a nuclear button. So we need to understand that and stop being intimidated by Kremlin threats. You are a, a diplomat, a uh, lifelong diplomat, so I have to ask you about the diplomatic talks that are going on between Ukraine and Russia. This morning, President Zelensky said that Russia's negotiating position is becoming more realistic. Uh, you've been in these rooms. You were ambassador, as I mentioned, to Ukraine. Does this seem promising to you? I think it is interesting, but I remain deeply skeptical. First, there have been no real diplomatic talks yielding progress since Moscow's war in Ukraine began eight years ago. Second, the, the, the reports we have, especially in the Financial Times, suggest that there may be something going on which is interesting. But at the same time, President Putin is still demanding basically an unconditional surrender by Ukraine. So I don't know which is the real Russia talking. Is it the, whoever it is in those talks or is it President Putin? If in fact the reports we're seeing are real, then perhaps something truly is up. But I would, I would hold my enthusiasm for the moment. Ambassador John Herbst, thank you so much for that really interesting perspective. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And borrowing money, whether it is for a car or a house or using your credit card, it's about to get more expensive. We'll explain next.
In our money lead, if you just took out a loan to buy a house or a car, good timing. Borrowing money is about to get more expensive. The Federal Reserve just announced its first interest rate hike in four years after slashing rates when the pandemic began. But there may be some good news. This quarter of a percent rate hike is one of the government's best tools to combat ballooning inflation, which is strapping Americans at the gas pumps and at grocery stores. CNN's Matt Egan joins me now. So, Matt, the question I'm sure a lot of people who are watching are asking is, so why didn't the Federal Reserve do this at the first signs of inflation going up? Well, Dan, I think that's a great question. And it's also one that a lot of officials at the Federal Reserve are probably asking themselves right now. In fact, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, he admitted today that with the benefit of hindsight, it would have been appropriate for the Fed to have raised interest rates sooner. He said that much is obvious now. Now, to be fair to the Fed, very few people in Washington or on Wall Street expected inflation to be this hot for this long. People did not anticipate the supply chain bottlenecks that were largely being caused by COVID. Now, the Fed dropped interest rates to zero almost exactly two years ago to try to rescue the economy from COVID. And it did help, but it is obvious that the economy doesn't need emergency support right now. Unemployment is very low. Inflation, as you can see on that chart, is very high. Consumer prices spiking in February at the fastest pace in 40 years. Now, the good news is that the Fed is stepping in here, acting like the firefighter, uh, trying to put the inflation fire out by raising interest rates. I think the bad news is it feels like the Fed is late to the scene here. And the more that inflation gets further from healthy levels, the more the Fed has to do to try to rein it back in. It's not going to be easy, Dana. Not at all. And what about fears of a recession, Matt? Well, Dana, the Fed faces this very difficult balance here because if they do too much, they risk short-circuiting this economic recovery and starting a recession. But if they don't do enough, then inflation can move out of control. Now, Larry Summers, who's been uh, sounding the inflation alarm for much of the past year, he's not very optimistic. The former U.S. Treasury Secretary put out this op-ed in the Washington Post. I'm going to read you a key line from it. He said, the Fed's current policy trajectory is likely to lead to stagflation and ultimately a major recession. Now, stagflation is this toxic mix of slow growth and high inflation, something that we saw in the late 70s and the early 80s. It's very hard to get out of. No one wants to see that. The key is going to be what happens in the coming months on inflation. Because if consumer prices start to ease, then the Fed could feel vindicated here with their patient approach. If not, then I do think those recession fears are going to only get louder. Uh, It is so critical that the Fed gets this right here, Dana. Critical. And I think it's fair to say that everybody is rooting for those consumer prices to come down. Thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate it. And if crude oil prices are the rocket, gas prices are the feather. When barrels of oil plummet in price, gas prices tend to lag behind. Crude oil prices have fallen 22 percent from their peak on March 8th, while gas prices are rising. They've risen 3 percent. As CNN's Renee Marsh reports, this trailing trend is frustrating for consumers and politicians. And the only big winner is, you guessed it, big oil. As gas prices soared and Russia's invasion of Ukraine was imminent, the fossil fuel industry anticipated a rise in demand and surging prices. And the political blame game ramped up. Democrats want to blame surging prices on Russia. But the truth is, 
their out-of-touch policies are why we are here. The blame was pinned on climate policies for hampering the oil industry's ability to increase supply. We need to be ramping up. We need to be ramping up right now. Through its lobbyists, the fossil fuel industry also publicly called for ramping up production to ease Americans pain at the pump. The most important thing that we can do right now is really focus on increasing supply. But audio from several fossil fuel companies' calls with investors are in stark contrast to those public comments. Instead, companies pledged higher dividends and stock buybacks to investors as Americans were hit with soaring gas prices. Our cash flow-driven return of capital framework uniquely prioritizes our shareholders as the first call on cash flow generation not the drill bit. That's Marathon Oil CEO on February 17th when the national average for gas prices was around $3.52 per gallon. That same day, Pioneer Natural Resources told investors this. We're not going to change our growth rate. Uh, we think it's important to return cash back to the shareholders. The day before Russia invaded Ukraine, Diamondback Energy CEO also told investors they won't risk profits by increasing supply. No one wants to see that shareholder return program, you know, put at risk with volume growth. After a decade of dismal financial returns, including the pandemic, Diamondback also told investors the profit windfall they're experiencing is the moment investors have been waiting for. And on the day Russia invaded Ukraine, Occidental Petroleum CEO put it bluntly. We have no need and no intent to invest in production growth this year. CNN reached out to all of these oil companies but did not get a response. They don't want to spoil the gravy train. They want to keep the profits flowing. There are some in the industry that have made statements regarding not being interested in ramping up production, but I think those are offset by many in the industry that have expressed their intention to ramp up production. To hear their lobbyists speak, you know, they're sort of being held down by government. The vast majority of U.S. oil production takes place on private land, not federal lands or waters. And despite the Biden administration's emphasis on clean energy, it has approved more permits to drill on federal land in its first year compared to each of Trump's first three years in office. Well, U.S. oil production is increasing, but it's happening at a very slow pace compared to previous periods of high gas prices. The fossil fuel companies would like Americans to believe that is because of climate policies, but these calls show that is simply just not the case. They yet. sure do. I mean, they are hiding their real agenda, making money for them and not passing it on to consumers yep. in plain sight. And you found it and you put it together. Thank you so much. Such an important piece, Renee. Appreciate it. And a van carrying a golf team from college hit head on by a pickup truck. We're now learning more about the victims of that deadly crash. In our national lead, nine people are dead in West Texas after a van carrying members of a New Mexico University's golf team collided head-on with a pickup truck overnight. That's according to local authorities. I want to get straight to CNN's Rosa Flores live in Texas. So, Rosa, what a tragic scene there. Tell us what happened and what the school is saying. You know, it's such a tragedy. According to Texas DPS, this crash happened last night at about 8.17 p.m. Now, all of this is still under investigation. This is the preliminary information from Texas DPS, who says the two vehicles were involved, a Dodge truck and a van. The students were in the van. According to Texas DPS, the truck 
went onto incoming traffic and hit that van head on. Both vehicles went up in flames and the driver and the passenger of that truck died. Now, according to Texas DPS and the University of the Southwest, there were nine individuals inside the van. That included seven individuals who, according to Texas DPS, have died. Six of them students, one faculty member. The other two individuals were transported to the hospital in critical condition. The university issuing a statement saying in part, quote, the USW campus community is shocked and saddened today as we mourn the loss of members of our university family. Please keep the families of the students, coaching staff, and the USW community in your prayers as we come together to support one another during this difficult time. Now, authorities have not released the names of the deceased. However, the mother of one of the victims releasing one of the names, identifying her daughter as Lacey Stone, a freshman, and the president of the university releasing the name of the faculty member who died, president of the university identifying coach Tyler James. He's described as a very caring coach. And Dana, we should add that not only is Texas DPS investigating, the NTSB is also investigating. They sent a GO team on the ground. We're expecting uh, 12 members to arrive sometime today. Rosa Dana. Flores, thank you for that report. And coming up, she was held in Iran for six years. Today, a British aid worker was freed. How her release was secured. Freed after, quote, six years of hell. That's how one U.K. lawmaker described Iranian-British aid worker Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe's detention in Iran. She was arrested at the Tehran airport in 2016 after a vacation. The Iranian government accused her of espionage. Her husband calls her homecoming, quote, a journey, not an arrival. The release comes after the British government settled a decades-old debt with Iran, including the release of another dual national. Thanks so much for watching. Our news continues right after with a quick after a quick break with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.